Good afternoon. Um, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name's Ryan Bourne, and I'm the, uh, well, I occupy rather the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics here at Cato. I'm delighted to host this book forum for my former colleague and good friend, Dr. Steve Davies. His new work is entitled Wealth Explosion, The Nature and Origins of Modernity. Perhaps the most fundamental question in economics, and certainly economic history, is how did we get so rich? Commentators often write these days about the causes of poverty. But the truth is, for the vast majority of the population, poverty was the, the state we found ourselves in for thousands of years prior to the takeoff in living standards seen from the mid-18th century. Now, that fact throws up all sorts of interesting historical questions. How is the world fundamentally different today than that faced by our ancestors? Is it just the wealth or something bigger? Was the great takeoff something that accelerated as part of a longer-term trend, or did it arise out of the specific conditions present 250 years ago? Why did this transformation begin and endure first in Northwest Europe and not elsewhere or in other periods? And might modernity be a mere aberration? Can this relatively modern dynamic endure? In this broad but very accessible book, Steve explores all of those questions and more, drawing on debates from historians and economists and examining the surprising, fundamental and continuing processes of innovation and transformation that have produced the world that we live in today. I'm sure this event will be an illuminating pricey, but I urge you also to buy the book and enjoy it for yourselves. To introduce our speakers, uh, Steve is currently the head of education at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. Previously, he was program officer at the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University. He has authored several books, including Empiricism and History, and the Dictionary, and he was co-editor, sorry, of the Dictionary of Conservative and Libertarian Thought. As someone who's worked with Steve, he's definitely the sort of guy you'd want on your pub quiz or trivia team, and he's a seemingly exhaustive knowledge of most subjects one can possibly discuss. And for the past five years or so, Steve has been outlining a thesis uh, for there being a fundamental political realignment underway, something that now seems incredibly prescient given recent political changes on both sides of the Atlantic. To comment on Steve's work and then for the broader discussion, I'm also delighted today to welcome the distinguished sociologist, political scientist and historian Dr. Jack Goldstone back to Cato. Uh, Dr. Goldstone occupies the Virginia and John Hazel Chair of Public Policy at George Mason University and is a global fellow of the Woodrow Wilson International Center. He's the author of Revolution and Rebellion in the Early Modern World, which was awarded the 1993 Distinguished Scholarly Research Award of the American Sociological Association. Perhaps most pertinently for today's discussion, he authored Why Europe? The Rise of the West in World History, which explores several of the important questions that Steve considers in his work. Dr. Goldstone has published nine other books, as well as over 100 research articles on topics in politics, social movements, democratization, and long-term social change. So today, uh, Dr. Davies will open us up for 20 to 25 minutes before Dr. Goldstone will comment for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then I'll try and open it up for as much time as possible to questions from you guys at the floor. 
So welcome to Cato again, and I hope you enjoy today's event. Thanks very much, Ryan. Uh, well, I'm delighted to be here, and it's very appropriate, uh, and I'm very glad, uh, that I should be speaking here at the Cato Institute, because actually uh, Cato did a major part in supporting me in the research and work that led to my writing this book. Uh, it actually was written originally about 10 years ago, because I had been doing lots and lots of talks at various seminars and events, including ones run by Cato, and they were all about the broad topic you heard Ryan outline. And Tom Palmer, whom some of you will know, uh, was constantly badgering me to turn this into a book. And eventually I said, yes, I'll do it. Uh, and uh, David Bowes and Cato very kindly supported me in this, partly by arranging funding from the Earhart Foundation, which enabled me to uh, take a year off uh, work, have a year sabbatical, basically, to do the research. I have to say that during the course of doing the research, I actually changed my mind about a couple of pretty important things, which is always a good sign, really. Uh, I discovered that opinions I had had were actually not supported by the evidence when I looked more deeply, so I, I changed the way I thought. Um, I'm afraid I had a bit of trouble with my publishers. Uh, I was being told by one publisher that the book was too academic and by another one that it wasn't academic enough. Um, and things were in a kind of state of limbo for quite a while until uh, my colleague at the IA, Philip Booth, uh, recommended me to the current publisher, John Spears. Uh, I recommend his list, by the way, it's extremely good. And uh, he then sort of commissioned me to uh, revise the book and uh, submit it. And so, fortunately, as I say, it's, it's come out. Uh, I have got another book coming out, by the way, from the same publisher uh, this September uh, called The Streetwise Guide to the Devil, uh, which uh, reflects another interest of mine. However, Ryan did a pretty good job there of setting out what, if it is, you like, is the explanandum, the thing I'm trying to explain, the thing I'm trying to address, the question of what is it that makes the modern world different and why does the modern world appear when and where it does rather than uh, appear at some other time and place. Now, it's worth emphasising just how different the modern world is from the world of our ancestors. If you look at things like not only wealth but also other things like urbanisation, uh, the role of women, the existence, or rather in the modern world, non-existence of widespread slavery, you become aware that the modern world is different not only from the immediately pre-modern world, but from pretty much all of human history. What becomes striking is the degree to which, at a certain elementary level, there's a kind of continuity across thousands of years of pre-modern history. And then there's a quite sudden and abrupt change in term, well, relatively abrupt speaking, historically that is, beginning in about 1760, 1770, which has been continuing ever since. Uh, now, the most obvious example of this is the one that Ryan alluded to, which is poverty. Uh, if you look at the living standards of the average Italian peasant in the time of Julius Caesar, and you compare them to the living standards of the average Italian peasant in the 1790s, they're not much different. Uh, the second one does have tomatoes, which the Roman peasant did not have, uh, but in many other ways, their life is very much the same. They're living in the same kind of way. If you look at the course of human history, there's very little uh, sustained rise in living standards, if any. At the same time, also, certain other things are constant. It's very, very difficult 
to have more than 10% of your population living in towns and cities. Yet in 1851, Britain becomes the first society anywhere in the course of human history to have more than half its population living in towns and cities. Uh, the United Nations revealed that a few years ago, for the first time ever in human history, more than 50% of the world's population lives in, in large cities. These are radical, revolutionary changes. Uh, and so you have to understand that, the degree to which there's a kind of severe discontinuity between the world we live in and the world of our ancestors and the experience that they had, the way they lived their daily life. Uh, the only two really comparable divisions in human history are the advent of agriculture in Fertile Crescent and the discovery of complex tools about 50,000 years ago. Now, the question really, which I, I suppose is my starting point, is why did this not happen sooner? Because if you think that innovation, dynamic economic growth, and all the rest of it are the product of voluntary human trade and interaction, uh, exchange, relationships, trade, business, commerce, these have been around in human history forever. Uh, so why did it take so long for this transformative process to begin? Why did it not start uh, at a different time and place sooner? Now, there are a number of episodes in the past where you can see the kind of intimations or first signs of that kind of modern transformation. Uh, efflorescences, as Dr. Goldstone has called them in one of his books. So you could point to, for example, uh, the Abbasid Caliphate in the Middle East in the 8th century. Uh, the lands around the Mediterranean, the Roman world, uh, in the second century AD. The biggest single example of this is China during the 12th and 13th centuries under the Song dynasty. Song China had an economy, uh, a technology that was advanced as that found in Western Europe in 1750. So the question then is, well, why didn't it keep going? Because that's what you find. In all of these previous episodes of sustained innovation and growth, what happens is that the growth just doesn't keep going. It either peters out or it is actively suppressed. Now, how and why does that happen? My thesis essentially is that there are two things which hold it back. The first is that our ancestors are living in a Malthusian world and a world of rigid scarcity where the great majority of the population are living on the edge of subsistence and where there are very hard natural resource constraints on what human beings can do. Our ancestors respond to this by creating all kinds of institutions, some formal, like guilds, for example, uh, or crop rotation systems, uh, others informal at the level of norms and rules, which prohibit various kinds of activities and insist upon certain social practices happening. Now, the aim of these is to give people security, but one of their effects is to check innovation, because innovation is risky. Most innovations do not work, and they use up scarce resources. And if you're living, for example, uh, one harvest failure away from starving, you don't want one of your neighbors using half of their seed stock on some kind of experimental farming activity, because it probably won't work, and that's some really valuable resources gone, and that might make the difference between getting through the next winter or not. 
The other thing is that rulers all over the world, the people who own not the means of production, but the means of predation, the people who control deadly force, uh, they have a strong incentive most times and most places to discourage innovation. Why? Well, in a sense, it's obvious. They're at the top of the pile. Why would you want things to change if you're at the top of the heap? Sure, if your kingdom becomes richer, it means more rent for you, and you can you know, have more fancy palaces or whatever it is you like. Uh, but it, it, to the extent that a middle class starts to appear, to the extent that your urban population and your peasant class become more affluent, they become more difficult to control. And the actual innovative process itself, which leads to the economic growth, simply leads people to question authority in a quite radical way. That in turn feeds the innovation, of course. And so elites, historically, very often deliberately stop change. Uh, China is the classic case, and I have a whole chapter on China in the book, talking about how the Ming dynasty that comes to power in 1368 systematically and consciously and deliberately reverses the dynamic, innovative society that had grown up under the previous Chinese dynasty, the Song. So those are the two uh, things. So the question is, throughout most of history, those two factors uh, lead to uh, any kind of movement towards the kind of dynamism that features the modern world being uh, either suffocated by the various kind of social constraints or deliberately uh, killed in the cradle, you might say, by action by the elites. So why does this not happen in Europe in the 18th century? That's the kind of core question of the book, really. Now, there are a number of explanations which I disagree with. One of them is that Europe was always different from other civilizations, that going right back to uh, at least the 12th century, maybe even uh, Athens and Jerusalem. But anyway, for a very long time, Western European civilization had a quality of dynamism, of individualism, and the rest of it that other civilizations lacked. There are two big problems with that kind of explanation. And this is the kind of explanation, by the way, which I originally believed in, but which I came to see was false when I did the more detailed research. The first is that if these things are always there, why does it take so long for them to have an effect? If medieval civilization has the same qualities of individualism and the rest of it that lead to rapid innovation from the 18th century onwards, why does it not have that effect at an earlier date? There has to be some other factor that you need to refer to. The other thing is that, quite simply, the facts do not stack up. If you look at the kind of institutions that people talk about, things like double-entry bookkeeping, uh, organized firms, uh, things of that sort, they are found in other parts of the world, in China, the Middle East, and India. They're not only found in Europe. And in fact, for most of its history, Europe is pretty much on a footing with the other major world civilizations. And in economic terms, really, it's a marginal place. It's a backwater. The real hub of the world economy for most of human history is the Indian Ocean and the lands around the Indian Ocean which includes the South and East China Seas. That is why the Portuguese are desperate to get into the Indian Ocean. They want to get a share of the action that's going on in that part of the world uh, and get a bit of the profits of the great trade and also cut out their Venetian uh, competitors who, along with the Ottomans, have cut them off from the Indian Ocean uh, trade. Uh, you don't find Indian or Middle Eastern traders who are desperately trying to get into the Atlantic. Even as late as the end of the 18th century, the Atlantic trade is much less valuable in terms of the value of the goods traded uh, than is the trade to China uh, and India. Uh, and so, essentially, 
Uh, it's not the case that until the 18th century there's anything particularly different about Europe, although in, I will argue in a moment that the real change that makes it different thereafter happens about 100 years earlier. So my, my thesis really, I, I'm not going to go into the details of this because I want you to read the book basically and buy it, but let me tell you that my thesis is that something happened in Europe uh, in the um, 16th and 17th centuries which meant that thereafter people with power in Europe and indeed other large social groups in Europe had a different view of change than was the case either previously in Europe or elsewhere in the world. It's to do, I argue, with the way that the gunpowder revolution, the revolution in warfare that takes place all over the world in the uh, 15th, 16th centuries had a different result in Europe to what it did elsewhere. Everywhere else, it leads to the appearance of large hegemonic empires. So the Middle East goes from having many, many very unstable states to being controlled by just two large states, uh, Safavid Iran and, of course, the larger one, the Ottoman Empire. Russia goes from being made up of about 14 to 20 states to being just a single empire, as it's remained ever since. India is united by the Mughals. China was always united, but becomes even more centralized than before. In Europe, this does not happen. For contingent reasons, I believe, purely accidental reasons, the obvious candidate for hegemonic power in Europe, which is Habsburg Spain, uh, does not achieve that status. Uh, not for lack of trying, Philip, Charles V and particularly Philip II are aiming to create a universal empire, as one of his contemporaries called it, but they don't succeed, mainly because they're unable to defeat their extremely stubborn uh, Dutch subjects. Uh, never get into an argument with a Dutchman, by the way. Uh, they, you may think they're very nice, like, you know, polite, friendly people, but they're also incredibly uh, strong-willed, as Philip found out. Uh, and the result is that Europe becomes divided into a number of competing states. And the rulers of those states have very strong incentives to innovate. Because they're in competition with other states, they have to mobilize lots and lots of resources in order to you know, keep up in the competition, because it's largely military at that point. Uh, and if you don't innovate, well, you end up like Poland. Uh, you end up being eaten up by your neighbours, because as you probably know, Poland is actually partitioned three times in the 1790s, disappears. Now, at the end of the 18th century, something happens. This is that the world becomes, by the standards of the time, quite severely overpopulated. World population has pretty much doubled between the 1690s and the 1770s. Chinese population slightly more than doubled, population of Europe just about doubled. The only part of the world that isn't seeing population growth at that time is Africa, for reasons that we don't really understand. Everywhere else, a number of things, most notably the potato, believe it or not, have led to a significant growth in world population. But by the time you get to the end of the 18th century, this is starting to push up against the limits of what the system can support. And in places like China in particular, you start to get very severe land hunger, uh, increasing problems of rural overpopulation, uh, starvation, the breakdown of rural agricultural systems and the like. And all over the world, this leads to a whole succession 
suppression of major popular rebellions in the, at the end of the 18th, start of the 19th century. So you obviously have these all around the Atlantic. There's the French Revolution, there's the uh, American Revolution, there's all the revolutions in the Spanish Empire, uh, but there's also massive slave revolts all across the Caribbean. Uh, there are huge uprisings in southern and western China, major trouble in India and in the Middle East at the same time. Now, the elites in Western Europe respond to this in a different way, and they respond to it in a way that means that the by encouraging innovation and by ensuring that that innovation does not stop. They actually sweep away uh, many of the traditional social institutions like guilds and the rest that had inhibited innovative, dynamic, economic and other behaviour. At the same time also, a large social constituency for change becomes clearly established in Europe at this time and in North America as well. And what you then have is a period between roughly 1790 and uh, 1860 in which there's a knockdown, drag out fight between the liberals, broadly speaking, who want change and who want to free up society to allow greater individual initiative, more dynamism, and the conservatives, the term invented at about the same time, uh, who want to preserve the ancien regime and to put a lid on all of this. Uh, new dynamic innovation, and they lose the argument. Uh, uh, it's basically decisively won uh, by the Liberal side, and that's why the process doesn't stop. And after 1860, roughly, it starts to accelerate. So the rate of economic growth up to about 1860 is quite low by modern standards, but after 1860, it starts to accelerate quite sharply. Now, uh, this is all a thesis about history, but I submit also that, like all accounts of history, it has major implications for today for the way we view where we are and understand our own position in history, and also for what we might think about trends and developments in the world today. So the first thing I would say is that we tend to think of ourselves as being inhabitants of something called Western civilization. And there's a common notion that the spread of modernity means the spread of the West, of, the, of Western civilization. I reject that idea. Uh, what I think is the case is this. The modern world is so different from the past, and the transformation has been so profound, that in a very real sense, we are no longer living in Western civilization. Classical Western civilization, the civilization of the classical Christian West, with its inheritance from the earlier civilization of the ancient Greeks and Romans, I think that basically became a dead tradition or memory at some point between roughly the 1890s and the 1950s. We are living in a new civilization, which happens to have originally grown out of the West, but which is no longer really Western. If you want to use a rather gruesome metaphor, if any of you have seen the film um, Alien, uh, you'll remember how the alien grows inside the body of the uh, spaceman and then bursts out of it. Uh, and I think, in a way, that's what has happened with Western civilization and the modern world that we now live in. It developed initially in Western civilization, but it then, in a way, uh, not just transformed it, but destroyed it. Something similar is happening with the other major surviving old world civilizations. We may see a global civilization appear, or it may be that we will have a number of different modern civilizations which draw upon the inheritance of the various old ones, but which are distinct and different from all of them. Secondly, though, this kind of process does not take place without a fight. Uh, if you look at the history of the last 200 years, what you find everywhere is an argument like the one that took place in Europe between pro and anti 
modernity forces. This is particularly acute at the moment in the Islamic world, but you see it elsewhere as well. And it, what is extraordinary is how the arguments made by the anti-modernists are always the same, and they constantly repeat. It's that the modern world is impious, it creates a way of living which is inhumane, it undermines respect for uh, higher principles, it encourages selfish obsession with physical well-being and money-grubbing, uh, it undermines the proper relations of the sexes. This is the kind of argument that is made constantly. And so that debate is still a very live one in many parts of the world. It's not even uh, finally put to bed in the West, heaven help us. And so there is always the danger uh, that in some significant part of the world, uh, an anti-modern agenda will win the argument. And we will see a kind of modern rendition of what the Ming emperors did in China, a deliberate reversal and choking off of the modern dynamic world. And that would have catastrophic results. Uh, we have a population at the moment of 7 billion people worldwide. Until you get to the end of the 18th century, the world's population has never really gone much above 700, 600 million people. Uh, and that's because that is the most that the pre-modern economy can actually support. Now, we might be able to support maybe one to, at the very most, two billion people. But you can do the maths. If we do not have the kind of modern world we do, there's no way we can support the kind of population we now have, never mind about the standards of living. So that's another thing to think about, about what is going on in many parts of the world today and the revival or persistence of arguments which would have us roll back modernity or stop it. But finally, uh, there's also the problem of inadvertently or accidentally killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. Doing things which are not intended to do this, but which have the effect of stopping the dynamic world economy that we have. It could well be, for example, that we want to keep modernity, but try to abandon some of its core features, such as the use of markets and private decisions to allocate productive resources. This is what communism was about, basically. Marx and uh, his followers are big fans of modernity. Marx hated the opponents of modernity, but he thought that the way to run modernity was through conscious, deliberative allocation of resources. It turns out that that's just not compatible with it, and the result would be catastrophic. Uh, there are similar ideas around, and it could also be that if we're not very careful, what we will do is this. The great risk and danger is that we will create, and I think we are in the process of creating, a global regulatory regime, uh, which is intended to replace the often rather violent interstate competition that we had. Now, good reasons for doing that. War is not a good thing. You don't want to depend upon progress being driven by military conflicts, and that's actually a bad way of thinking about it anyway. But the danger is that we create a kind of global regime which inadvertently, or maybe even deliberately, through adoption of things like the precautionary principle, restricts and chokes off innovation in the way that uh, it got choked off in earlier periods of history. And it's also possibly the case that certain institutions that have helped innovation in the past, like intellectual property, uh, may come now in, in the future to actually check uh, innovation. I think that is probably the case uh, increasingly, uh, particularly given the way that intellectual property is understood here in the United States and enforced. And I think in many ways that is the most uh, risky prospect in front of us at the moment. The chance that without really intending to, we'll create a kind of web of rules and institutions which will work in the same way as those moral economy institutions that I described earlier, and which will also change the incentives facing people with power 
uh, and make them once again go back to their default setting uh, of being hostile to innovation and wanting to stop it. And if that is the case, if that happens, which God forbid, uh, then as Ryan indicated in his introductory remarks, it could be that the modern world is just an episode. Uh, that really we've just had another efflorescence and it's gone on a bit longer than the previous ones uh, and been more profound in its effects, but it's still come to the same end. That would be the most appalling tragedy uh, because when I'm asked the question of when do you want to live, in which period of history would you like to live, my answer is always, oh, several hundred years from now uh, because uh, I believe firmly and I am uh, prepared to back this up, uh, to the hilt that we are living in the best time there has ever yet been for someone to be alive. But if we continue the way we have been going and we do not make the mistakes I've said we might do, then the times ahead of us will be even better. Uh, and that's why I would choose to live in the future, in fact, rather than in the past. So thank you very much. comment and Stephen for laying out such a rich argument. The book is excellent. I do urge you to get it. It tackles this challenging problem of what is the world like that we're living in? How did we get here? Where do we go? Uh, I'm going to focus on just the where are we and where are we going to go? Uh, because I do think uh, it's worth reflecting on the truth that although we are infinitely wealthier than past civilizations, that we have had a wealth explosion. It's not true that we've had a similar explosion in happiness, contentment, and security. And so if we want to understand what's the nature of the world, what is it that we value in it, where have we come, and where do we go, we need to think of it in terms of human needs, not just in terms of material gains. Now, the material gains need to be understood as not simply a multiplication of wealth as it was understood. That is, prior to 1800, uh, wealth was not what people focused on so much. That is, philosophers wanted to design a virtuous society. Mm. Political leaders wanted to increase the power of their realm. They wanted to compete more effectively with other monarchs and competitors. Uh, wealth was a means to that, but wealth was limited. There was only so many uh, castles you could build. Uh, no matter how wealthy you were, uh, it wouldn't cure your diseases. Uh, it wouldn't let you preserve the harvest for more than two or three seasons before the rot and the rats took it away. There were enormous limitations. The fastest anyone could travel was the speed of a galloping horse. Uh, the uh, fastest... Uh, you could shoot a projectile, uh, would be from a crude gunpowder cannon or rifle. Uh, what we can do now exceeds the imagination of anyone who lived before 1800. Uh, if I want to travel, I can essentially get on a magic carpet that we call an airplane and go from Washington to San Francisco in five or six hours, as opposed to spending two weeks trying to uh, take a carriage across the muddy rivers and mountains. Uh, we light with uh, electrical lighting, LEDs now, having superseded light bulbs. Um, and we, none of us wants for enormous variety and quantity of food. Uh, this is a totally different world. 
than we lived in before, uh, a world of scarcity, as Stephen said. But while we have banished scarcity, we have not banished competition, particularly for status. We have not banished uh, various kinds of insecurity and anxiety. And we have not created uh, general universal happiness, which was the goal of the 18th century uh, philosophers once they realized that there was a chance that this scarcity was in the process of being overcome by a variety of uh, technical scientific uh, advances in agriculture and manufacturing. Why is it that we are still struggling, in a sense, to be happy? Why are we still fighting wars, competing with each other, worried about whether our children will live better or worse lives, worried about whether we will get jobs? The answer is we have superseded many of the material constraints on previous societies, but we are still social beings. We still depend on society for the management of our lives and for the understanding of who we are. Our identity matters to us. What our family thinks of us matters to us. What other people beyond our family think of us matters. Some of us are concerned about building a legacy. Some of us are simply concerned about achieving private dreams and goals. One thing that accompanied this wealth explosion hmm. and was just as unique and remarkable was the spread of the idea that every human being mattered, that every human being was entitled to freedom <clears throat> and dignity. That was an absurd thought prior to the 18th century. I don't know how many of you saw the, the Game of Thrones uh, finale episode, but there's one point where the great lords of Westeros are trying to choose the next king. And someone proposes, well, since the people will be greatly affected by who's the next king, maybe the people should be given some role in choosing. And this was laughed off as ridiculous. You know, may as well let horses decide where they would ride, may as well let hounds decide who they would hunt. Uh, it's just a crazy idea. For most of history, most people did not matter. Most people were peasants whose job was to simply produce the food and materials that sustained everyone's life and to be cannon fodder for the battles that the leaders embarked on. But there was no thought that the average person would be someone who should be consulted or even whose choices should determine matters for the community. Now, there were exceptions, to be sure. And this is where the Western tradition really was unique, because as far back as ancient Greece, there was this innovative idea of active citizenship. Yes, it didn't extend to women, didn't extend to slaves, but all male citizens in the community were expected to play an active role and were expected to share the protection of the laws and play a role in making those laws. Now, that's very different than the other major global civilizations and traditions. It would be uh, desirable from our point of view as a uh, legatee of Western civilization who from the date of the Reformation and the French and American revolutions have embraced this idea that every competent adult is entitled to freedom and dignity and even others in society, children, as well, women, of course, have rights. The very idea that people have rights, rather than just obligations under the law, was part of this revolutionary reconception of society. 
And I think this is where we are, in some sense, still living in a Western civilization here, even though it's immeasurably richer and our material conditions are different. We still think that the people who compose this society should have their individual rights respected and protected. But this is not a universal legacy. In China today, we have a leadership that although they are encouraging private enterprise in the economy, they do not encourage the idea that citizens should contribute to making the critical decisions on the laws they follow or the actions of their government. And in this, Xi Jinping is following good Confucian tradition. It's interesting to note on the one hand that the idea of a meritocratic, professionally trained cadre of government bureaucrats is not a Western idea. That comes from China. That's why the British civil service is referred to sometimes as a mandarinate, adopting the Chinese notion. So we have taken notions from other civilizations and absorbed them, just as other non-Western civilizations have adopted the idea of human rights, freedom, and democracy as their preferred form of government. But we have not yet resolved for the world as a whole which system will prevail. Uh, China certainly claims that their method of dealing with political decisions is perfectly good for them and even advisable for many others. Russia has developed a kind of uh, oligarchy-led, semi-capital economy led by a uh, popular but uh, unopposed and non-accountable leader, and that's an attractive model. We see many leaders around the world seeking to reduce their accountability and the constraints on them, and they're able to do so partly by taking advantage of that insecurity and anxiety that still remains. No matter how rich the world seems to have become, in some ways we still worry about matters. Is our identity secure? Is our future secure? Human beings are innately social. We worry about what is our identity group, who will be part of it, how will our role be protected, and we're often willing to suspend the very difficult task of being an active citizen in some ways if we feel a leadership will reinforce and support our identity group and protect us from threats. And indeed, one could argue that the leadership in Russia and China is probably more popular today than the leadership in most of the Western democracies of Western Europe and North America. It's not just that they are unopposed, they are actually popularly supported and believed in. So I'll simply close by saying I think that Stephen is absolutely right. We should be grateful and realize we live in a time of unprecedented prosperity, it is based on the acceptance and embrace of innovation. It is based on a continual striving to improve the conditions of life in the belief, which is novel in itself, that that improvement is continually possible and within our reach. But at the same time, we are also fighting an ideological battle between the Enlightenment idea that Every person's beliefs have value, every person's life and dignity has value, versus the more traditional legacy of authority, which was both dominant 
in Europe between the fall of the Roman Empire and the French Revolution, and has been dominant in most of the world through history, that it is more effective and more secure to have a government in which only the few, the few chosen by some method, it may be heredity, it may be uh, past achievement, it may be some type of uh, meritocratic system, but the alternative view is that only some limited few should have full rights. Only some limited few should make decisions for everyone else. And I submit that we are in the process of discovering whether a system in which only a few make the decisions can effectively compete in the areas of innovation and continued material progress with societies where everyone is protected and the few are always held constrained and accountable. This, I think, is going to be the challenge that determines whether we develop one global civilization and what that civilization will look like. And I look forward to questions from everyone here. Thank you all for coming. Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you, uh, Jack. We've got plenty of time for uh, Q&A. Just as uh, a few housekeeping rules on this, if you please wait to be called upon, we have got microphones uh, coming around towards you. Um, so everyone in the room and audience who are watching online can, can hear you. And if you could announce your, your name and affiliation at the start of the question, that would be most welcome as well. So yes, the gentleman with the hat at the front. My name is Stephen Hankin. I want to ask you a very kind of broad question. Um, Deidre McCloskey has written this, you know, volume of books, The Bourgeois Virtues. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I want to know, do you think you're in agreement with her? Does it go, does it support what, what, what both of you are saying? Um, and, or, or do you really think you're just saying somewhat the same thing? Um, I broadly agree with her, but I, not fully. Uh, there is a difference between this. I know her quite well, so you know, she's well aware of this. Um, for those of you who haven't read Deirdre's very large books, she argues that the modern world, the great enrichment, as she calls it, uh, comes about mainly because of a ch cultural change, a change in the way that business, commerce, and economic life is viewed. And in particular, the idea, getting ground, initially with the Dutch, latterly with other people, that uh, the career of commerce and business is virtuous and dignified. Now, the phenomenon she describes, I think, is a real one. Uh, and it doesn't just happen in Europe, by the way. It also happens in Japan with something called Chunindo, which appears under the Tokugawa shoguns in the early 18th century. Uh, and it's a very important one, because um, one of the things that Jack mentioned is that in the modern world, we uh, have the, right, the idea of universal human rights and dignity as opposed to uh, unequal uh, status for people. And another part of that division, if you will, is over the question of how important is physical wealth. Now, you might think, who is going to be crazy enough to say, well, we don't want people to be better off economically. Uh, but actually, uh, yeah, there are people like that. So in World War I, Werner Sombart, German economic historian, one of the really bad guys, by the way, um, he had a book uh, called Handler und Helden, Merchants and Heroes, in which he argued that the Great War was a Glaubenskrieg, a war of values between the corrupt, effete, money-grubbing, selfish, bourgeois values 
of the British and the French, uh, and the stern warrior martial virtues of the Prussian. Uh, and the reason why he thought the Prussians were the cool guys was they were only concerned with honor, uh, whereas the British were concerned with their pocketbooks and making themselves more physically comfortable, comfortisables, as he called it. So I think Deirdre's onto something. This is a very important phenomenon. Where I disagree is that she makes this the major cause of all the changes. Uh, and I, I just don't think that important as this phenomenon is, it bears that explanatory weight. So I think that it's part of the process of change, actually. But I think the actual ultimate cause or enabler of that change is something else. OK, we'll take the next question. Um, so yes, this gentleman at the front. <clears throat> Dan Lieberman. Uh, one thing you didn't uh, get into was the Renaissance, uh, that uh, during the Renaissance, uh, uh, the Arabs uh, you know, had translated the Greek into Latin, mm. and also there was a movement of the science and uh, mathematics of, uh, of the Arabs into European civilization. And that coupled with the Reformation allowed a whole new way of thinking and adaptation to more scientific uh, way. That's one question. And the other from Mr. Goldstein, uh, there are certain things that uh, vital decisions that have to be made in the future, global warming, environmental damage, uh, ecological damage, the scarcity. Uh, do you think that these decisions are going to have to be made, something have to be made very quick, will have to be made more by autocratic methods than by what we call democratic methods? So I think we have two separate yeah, I'll, questions. I'll go ahead on that. Um, autocratic decision-making is attractive in times of great stress. That's why Greeks, Romans, and even the United States in times of war has given great power to uh, rulers and generals. But those decisions don't tend to be lasting unless they win over a majority of the people to accept them as desirable. So coping with our current uh, climate problem, uh, you could have certain solutions by executive order. They could be overturned two or four years later. What we need is a process that arrives at some consensus on things that will be done. Fortunately, I do think that um, the price signals we're getting on what will happen with uh, solar power are saying it's going to get cheaper and cheaper. Batteries are going to get cheaper and cheaper. Instead of shipping oil around the world, we'll be shipping low-cost lithium batteries that have stored solar power. Uh, from solar areas, I think we will be able to avoid species extinction. What I don't think we'll be able to avoid is a considerable amount of grief and suffering. One of the other things I could have mentioned is that our great wealth has not brought us wisdom. So the societies that experienced World War I and World War II, as well as the Great Depression in between, were far materially wealthier than any previous society. But they were not wiser, and because they had greater destructive power, they were able to inflict suffering of a greater magnitude than we had seen. We may inflict suffering of a great magnitude upon ourselves again uh, if we're not able to make decisions in a timely fashion. But human beings are very resilient. You could tell Europeans in the middle of World War I or even World War II when they're living in dictatorship, uh, genocide, and war, a couple of decades from now, you'll be more peaceful and prosperous than you can imagine. 
I think we may have huge struggles in the next two decades, but I'm fairly confident that four or five decades from now, humans again will have more prosperity uh, and security than they can imagine. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll also say quickly about that. I think we do face quite severe challenges. Uh, I do mention so briefly en passant towards the end of the book, because I don't have time to, de to develop it, that we do face, I think, a pretty severe energy supply problem at the moment. Uh, we are facing an increasingly uh, acute constraint in terms of supplies of energy at a reasonable price. Uh, to do with what they call the ROA ratio, the energy return over energy invested ratio. However, the question is, what do you do about that? Now, the obvious temptation uh, is to go for the idea that, well, what you want is to cut through all this complicated, messy debate stuff and just have one person make the decisions. Actually, all of the evidence is that that is a recipe for disaster uh, because the chances are that that person will get it wrong. Uh, and what is actually much more effective is to have decentralized decision-making to allow lots and lots of experimentation, lots and lots of trial and error. That's the way you're more likely to actually come up with solutions to problems of that kind. Uh, another thing also is it's widely believed at the moment that the way to solve problems like that is to put them in the hands of smart people. And something I've written about is the, that the idea that the world would be fine if only really smart people were in charge is utterly wrong. Having smart people in charge is usually a recipe for disaster. Uh, you do not want smart people in charge because smart people overestimate how much they know and how much ability they have to control the world. What you want in charge is people with good judgment, which is not the same thing. Uh, I think the history of the Defense Department here in the US in the Vietnam War is a classic example of what happens when you have the best and the brightest in charge. Uh, so like Jack, I am quite confident that in the long run, if we allow the process of spontaneous discovery and order to take place, we will come up with technologies that will get, like such as super batteries, that will get us through that problem. What we should avoid is talk about things like the precautionary principle or having some kind of top-down control and decision-making. I think that would actually be the way to make sure that we do not resolve those problems or address them effectively. Just on that point, do you... Do both of you worry that quite often some of the political voices who are loudest about the, the climate um, change problem that we face seem to have almost fused ideologically with the more kind of Malthusian anti-development, anti-innovation forces that, that one sees in politics today? To some degree, yeah. I think there are two... You need to distinguish there are two kinds of environmentalist politics at the moment. There are environmentalists, who I would call the sane ones, who... Um, want to keep the modern world, uh, but think that we need to shift the way we do things quite significantly. I'm not necessarily in disagreement with that. I tend to just disagree about how we should do it. Uh, but on the other hand, there are a more extreme minority, but vocal minority position, which is that, well, actually, uh, the whole of modernity was a big mistake. We should not have done it. Or even the really extreme minority, that actually having farming and civilization was a big mistake. Um, we, sh we should go back to being uh, hunter-gatherers, basically. Uh, I mean, this is crazy stuff. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that that is ever going to command a majority in a democratic society. The problem is, if it becomes captured by those ideas, captured an elite that has power, uh, I think there's no danger if we rely upon decentralized decision-making like democracy. But I can see that kind of ideology having a very damaging effect in an autocratic regime. Uh, great. Um, let's try and get some questions from a variety of geographical places. So we'll, we'll go for the gentleman up there. He 
Gabriel Greenspan from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. I wanted to touch on um, one of the last questions with um, the Reformation specifically. And the one thing that was kind of coursing through my mind through this whole discussion um, was some of the religious elements and religious changes you saw at some of these same time periods. So like, for example, the, the rise in respect for individual rights and dignity happened in Europe, which was um, at the time controlled by Judeo-Christian principles, the idea that, you know, um, religiously speaking, there is, you know, idea that human beings were made in the image of God. Um, secondly, this occurred at the time, same time of the Protestant Reformation, which uh, suggested that uh, individuals should, you know, for example, <coughs> Um, study religion themselves, read their scriptures, et cetera, instead of simply relying on religious elites to tell them what to believe. Um, do you think any of that had an impact? And if so, what was the impact? And were there other religious elements and changes that um, played into both the um, economic changes and changes in social thinking that you were describing? Can I? Yeah. You raise a, a very good point, and I think it's worth going back to think about how different civilizations treated the value of human life. Every great um, civilization respected the value of human souls and treated human beings as having a birth and death that was worth celebrating. But most of them also treated human souls as part of a divine and social order that was inherently inequal, unequal. That is, everybody had their part to play in the great chain of being or the great order of things or the great balance. Uh, the Ottomans, uh, you know, argued that if the nobles do not protect the peasants, the peasants won't be able to produce. If the peasants can't produce, there'll be no taxes. If there are no taxes, the state will fall. If the state falls, the aristocrats will be scattered. So every group relied on every other group doing their assigned task in order for the system as a whole to work. And so harmony and cooperation depended on preserving a kind of systemic inequality. So everyone was part of the program, as it were, but it was kind of like, for a shepherd, every sheep in the flock is important, <laughs> but they're not active citizens. And what was unique in the Reformation, the idea that every individual should have a direct relation with God rather than mediated through the clergy as part of one of these chains of inequality, that was novel. But even that, as Luther argued, was not a reason to dis, uh, disrespect or take authority away from kings. That is, you, you worked in the Reformation and the Bible to understand your relationship to the divine, but you still had to respect your place in the social order. But eventually, with the discovery of new ideas, new things, new relationships, the idea arose that even the authority of kings, as well as the authority of priests and popes, should be put aside in favor of the informed, rational discussions among citizens, all of whom had an equal possibility of saying something useful. This is where Deirdre's notion that uh, bourgeois virtues included a respect for everyone's input, everyone's opinion, was indeed transformative. I agree it wasn't the main thing, mm. but you really couldn't have sustained innovation if only a few people were allowed to decide what should be done next. Yeah. And so religion as a regulator of social order was for most of history a great 
maintainer of severe inequality. Only recently has both religion and the ability of people to choose their religion and how they practice become part of a fabric of inequality and individual freedom. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that. And uh, if I could just add a gloss, gloss to what Jack's just said. Um, medieval Christianity, the, the world of you know, Dante and so on, is very much as he describes it. And then the Protestant Reformation is this huge shock but it's worth pointing out that the mainstream of Protestantism, Luther, Calvin, uh, the Anglicans, they are frantically trying to put the genie back in the bottle. They're trying to keep a lid on all this, basically. It's the far-out extremists, the Anabaptists, the Quakers, uh, the Unitarians in particular, who are the ones who push the kind of individualism and free thinking uh, argument to its limits. So I think that a lot of what we see in the modern world, in the sense that Jack's talking about it, comes from that extreme radical fringe of Protestantism. That's where John Locke is, for example. Uh, he sort of outs himself after his death as a Unitarian. Uh, he did not want to admit to that while he was alive, by the way, because he would almost certainly have ended up in prison if not executed had he done so. But uh, posthumously, he does come out as that. So I think that's what's going on there. Um, and, uh, you know, as Jack says, this is, this is a big transformative change, but it, it takes place slightly later. Right, next question. We'll go for the gentleman in the middle with the uh, green shirt. It was told that in the past, people didn't matter. My question is that right now that 54 people own more than, according to the, uh, uh, you know, uh, published news, that 54 people own more than 50% of the whole asset of the uh, universe presently, of the, Wells, does the uh, people matter? Has it changed anything? Or it had got worse? Maybe the uh, wealth has been more and more available, but not for the people. It's just for a special group of the, uh, you know, the, uh, on, who have been in charge in the past and uh, right now too. No, not at all. And also, the, isn't that the same kind, some kind of slavery? that this is situation and calling it uh, Western democracy, Western civilization, and uh, human rights, and all of those, isn't it just some kind of uh, uh, publicity fooling the people rather than actual, the real? No, not at all. Um, several things to say, say to that. The first is that if you look, first of all, um, talking about income rather than wealth, uh, the trend of the last 30 to 40 years in particular has been for the biggest reduction in the number of people living in absolute poverty in recorded human history. As recently as the 1960s, according to the World Bank's figures, 50% of the world's population are living in absolute poverty, defined as being a daily income of $1.25 a day or less. Now, according to their most recent report, that proportion of the world's population has fallen below 10%. Uh, so there's been a massive reduction, mainly because of what's been going on in China and India, uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's continuing, not least in Africa, which is actually one of the bright spots of the world economy now for the first time ever, really. And this is what we have as a situation where the increase in 
total global wealth that we've seen over the last 200 years has actually lifted up the living standards the, uh, and therefore the everyday economic experience of ordinary people to an unprecedented degree. Now, there are two ways we could, you can respond to those figures about um, the statistics that you, you cited, which come from a Credit Suisse report. Uh, one of them is that, well, does this matter? If the majority of the world's population are better off and are being lifted out of poverty, does it matter that some people have become unbelievably rich? And I would submit that, since I'm not a pure egalitarian, uh, no, it does not. It will only matter, but this is a serious point, if that marked concentration of wealth translates into political power. Now, I agree, that is a problem, but I don't think the inequality of wealth per se is a problem. And I have to say also that actually that figure is severe, is basically based on faulty statistics. The report, there is a marked inequality, but it's nothing like as big as that figure suggests, actually, because that figure is quoting net wealth, uh, and it that brings you up to some truly bizarre conclusions, which is that, for example, most Americans under the age of 30 are in the poorest 10% of the world's population uh, because they typically have large debts from things like college tuition. Uh, if you look at lifetime earnings, you don't find anything like that. Similarly, you come, you come up with the conclusion that China, uh, somehow virtually all of China's population is in the middle of the global wealth range, which again is, you know, simply not, not the case. It's actually the wrong measure. Um, the trouble is it's very difficult to measure global wealth, actually. It's very hard to do, not least because a lot of the wealth that people have now is not actually physical stuff. It's in the nature of fiduciary claims. So I think if you try to do a more careful look at the numbers, you'll find that, yes, the world is very unequal. This is undoubtedly true. Uh, but it's not clear that um, it's actually any more unequal than it was, say, 100 years ago. And as I said a moment ago, the question is not are people, some people a lot richer than others. It's, does that extra wealth bring significant control over the political process? That's the question to worry about, uh, it seems to me. Uh, and I think, you know, that's what you can have an argument about that, but I don't think you can say there's something wrong with that per se. I'm a little more sympathetic to your point. Let me return to my original framing, which was that it's one thing to talk about wealth, it's another thing to talk about how well society functions as a community of social human beings. Now, inequality by itself may be good or bad. If everyone is poor and you want society to get richer, if you can't lift everyone all at once, then those who are in the vanguard of moving society forward will be richer than the rest. There will be inequality, but if the rest follow, the equality will either diminish or become less significant if everyone's situation is improving. At the same time, if inequality creates such gaps between the average and the better off that social mobility becomes increasingly difficult because it's harder and harder to overcome that gap and for people to move up, that discourages initiative, that undermines people's sense of possibility and respect, that's a bad thing. So social mobility declining due to excessive inequality, hmm. I think, is, is a problem. I would also say, having just come back from San Francisco, you may have seen some of the articles now, San Francisco is suffering from an excess of concentrated wealth that has driven up the price of housing to the point where you can't operate a restaurant because you can't hire help. It's hard for school teachers to live anywhere in commuting distance for schools of people, but if, you know, if you're all young techies without kids, you may not worry about school children. But a, a healthy society 
relies on integrating a diversity of people, people of different interests, uh, different proclivities, different levels of income, achievement, uh, and relies on a certain amount of um, juggling and sorting and renewal across generations that requires everyone to kind of, to some degree, live in the same social world. When you have inequality that reaches a point where it's harder and harder for people to feel they live in the same world, they have common interests to be debated, they have common problems that need solutions, then the democratic order and the involvement of everyone productively starts to break down. So the statistics like X percentage of people have X percentage of money, that doesn't mean anything. That's kind of, you can play with the statistics in different ways. But a decline in social mobility, a decline in the affordability of housing, a decline of people's trust in institutions, those things do worry me. And if inequality is driving those things, then I agree we have a problem. I, I, very quickly, I don't disagree with that, actually, but I would make two specific points. One is the kind of place like San Francisco or London, where you get that, are an example of what I was talking about. The reason why housing is so incredibly expensive in San Francisco is because those very wealthy people have rigged the local zoning laws so that you can't build new housing. Right. And it's the same in London. So that's an example of what I was talking about, the capture of the political process by the wealthy. The other thing is I agree that there's a problem with social mobility, but I think it's because of, it's not because of wealth per se that's the barrier. It's to do with the meritocratic labour market and the way it works, which is, makes it increasingly difficult for people to escape the condition of their parents, basically. And I do agree with Jack, that is a problem. Yeah, the, um, the literature on the economic and political science literature on the link between wealth inequality and democracies is pretty much in its infancy. But one of the few studies that we do have which looks at the preferences of the wealthy was a, a pilot study carried out by interviewing 100 extraordinarily wealthy people in Chicago. And, uh, and that group said that their biggest economic concern was the budget deficit. Well, given current trends in the budget deficit, that's not a priori evidence that the, the rich have captured the political system fully in the US just yet. Um, so we'll go to another question. Um, yes, the lady in the, the white T-shirt. Thank you. Um, I have two questions, really. One, um, can you define modernity? Because I don't, I'm not sure, maybe I missed okay, it. But, and also, if you can identify the differences between modernity and Western civilization that you wanted to... Sorry, refer. could you just repeat a bit louder that second part? I just um, And uh, if you can identify differences between modernity and Western civilization. And the second question I had was, um, you mentioned something happened in the 18th century that made a big difference. But um, there was a lot of precursor to this, right? Uh, for example, Magna, one can go as far as Magna Carta or anything before that. And you know, the fact that uh, first the stock exchange was in Amsterdam also wasn't an accident. So um, it's a bit surprising that you feel 18, end of 18th century was this breaking point. So if you can elaborate on that. Yeah, OK. Very good question. What is, what is modernity? I mean, a lot been written about this. And there are some historians who argue that really there is no distinction or difference between the modern world and the pre-modern world. Um, Andre Gunder Frank, for example, who actually had a big influence on my thinking when I was writing the book, he argued very strongly that the modern world is just more of what 
went on before. It's therefore not qualitatively different. So I obviously disagree with that. And I think I, in, in the book, I have a whole chapter where I sort of set out what it is that makes the modern world different from previous periods in human history. The most obvious is the sustained intensive economic growth and the greater wealth, but it's not the only one. There's also a whole series of cultural and intellectual changes, greater individualism, what uh, Jack Olson talked about, greater respect for individual human beings, the disappearance of a number of institutions which had always been around, such as slavery. Pretty much every society before the modern world has slavery. Sometimes it's a big institution, sometimes it's a marginal one, but they always have it. It's only in the modern world that you see that disappear. The status of women in the modern world is radically different from what it is in pretty much any previous human society. Um, there's a kind of transformation in the nature of religious belief and observance, I argue, as well. There's the thing I mentioned, greater urbanization. All, that's, what, that's what modernity is, really. Modernity is that condition and state of affairs and also the process that brings it about, sustained innovation. Now, what about Western civilization? Well, um, very quickly, to me, a civilization is ultimately in, and finally a body of commonly understood codes and cultural meanings, which find expression in various physical and human forms. Uh, and so Western civilization is one essentially in which the, that core body of um, codes are derived primarily from Christianity, but with a significant input from the older civilization, preceding civilization of classical Greece and Rome. Uh, and I think that that has pretty much gone. Um, so if you were to show somebody from um, you know, a Western background a picture of uh, a dark, smoky landscape with lots of flame and fire and lots of agonized people uh, being tortured by uh, dark black figures with, with horns and, and hooves and things, you'd know this was a representation of hell. Uh, or now, Game of Thrones. Or Game of Thrones, indeed, <laughs> yes. On the other hand, um, if you were to see a Hindu painting of almost exactly the same apparent appearance, the mean, you might think, oh, that's hell. No, it's not. It's something completely different because that's a different civilization. You're in the realm of Yama, Yama Raja, the, the king of the dead, but that's a, a purgative realm. And the apparently malevolent creatures you see torturing people are actually benevolent beings who are uh, purifying the souls of the dead so they can be reborn. Uh, and that's what I mean by the collapsing two civilizations. Now, um, just to give you one very simple example about why I think the modern world, we have lost touch with the historic Western civilization. Um, you'll often read people saying, oh, the writing's on the wall for X or something. Um, two generations ago, certainly, certainly three generations ago, everyone would have known that that was an allusion to the book of Daniel and Belshazzar's feast. I submit to you that in Western Europe today, I don't know about the United States, less than 10% of the population would know what that meant. Uh, there's been a kind of radical loss of memory in that sense, I think. And that's why I think that we're, you know, it, we're in a new and different civilization than the one we were in before. Maybe, actually, interestingly, less true in the United States than in other parts of the world. And what about that, that second question that actually there were oh, um, yes. things, you know... Uh, sorry, I, I should address that. The, the thing is... Um, Yes, there are. That, what you're talking about there is things like the growth of constitutional government, which is a, a very important aspect of the history of, the, of medieval Europe. Uh, the growth of institutional legal constraints on the power uh, of rulers, Magna Carta being the first of many 
the Golden Bull of Hungary, a whole bunch of Polish statutes, Fueros of Aragon, lots of them. The thing is, though, that those don't last, actually. Most of them, England is actually a bit unusual in that those things survive there when they do not survive in other parts of Europe because of the rise of absolutism in the early modern period, although there are these odd survivals elsewhere. But the thing is, that's to do with politics. Now, I'm not downgrading the importance of that. I think that constitutional government is one of the great human social innovations and discoveries, and it's very important. But um, it's not combined, typically, with an idea of universal human rights and dignity until the 18th century. Uh, that's the sort of crucial extra element. Uh, and also, as I say, it, that very traditional constitutional government actually goes into recession across most of Europe in the 16th, 17th centuries. It's only really in the Dutch Republic and Britain that it survives. Okay, next questions. Uh, do you go for the gentleman on the uh, alleyway there? Ed Rivera, you mentioned earlier sort of this idea of uh, periods where you have growth and you have sustainable economic development and then it sort of disappears. And often I associate this with sort of a recession from one's neighbors, withdrawing into oneself, a hermit period. So I was curious to what extent you think the current sustainable development going on in the world and why it's lasted so long is because it's harder and harder for countries to be able to do that. Uh, with current globalization and interconnectedness, you have neighbors possibly even aggressively knocking on your door, hey, open up China and take this opium sort of feeling. Yeah. Uh, so I was w wondering to what extent you think that carries the weight or to what extent you might think it's other factors. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think that is an important part of what's going on. Um, in the sense that it makes the kind of deliberate reversal of innovation that you see in Ming China much more difficult uh, because you're part of a globally interconnected system. There are examples of countries that try that tactic during the 19th century and subsequently Madagascar, for example, under the, the last ruling monarch of the old um, Marina dynasty that ruled the island, the empire, uh, they tried to do that, to deliberately prevent the importation of uh, new technology, to cut Madagascar off from the world trade system. Well, it didn't work, uh, not least because it attracted the attention of the French, of course, uh, who you know, probably invade and conquer the place. Uh, but also it was just breaking down anyway. Um, and similarly, uh, Japan tries that for a long time, uh, although actually Tokugawa Japan is an extremely dynamic society, uh, very much so. But again, it tries to cut itself off from the rest of the world, but it can't do it. So yes, I think, I think you're quite right about that. It is much more difficult to do than it used to be. Uh, yes, gentlemen at the front. Just here, just here. James Sang, um, you mentioned that uh, good ideas uh, that were very helpful in the past can become bad ideas, and you used yeah. the idea of IP. Yeah. Is that a singular phenomenon, or are we sitting today on a collection of bad ideas, good I of good ideas that aren't really that good in today's context? You, you want to just jump into that? Look, some, some people, well, for most of history, democracy was considered a bad idea. And it was kind of refined to the notion of a republic that was a representative democracy in order to make it bearable. Um, we are sitting on a lot of bad ideas, to be sure. And the whole point of having a, the Enlightenment belief that rational debate and evidential testing must be continuously done without privileged position for anyone is to discard all the bad ideas that constantly come up. An authoritarian regime is much more efficient, and living under a benign dictatorship is generally easier than under a 
you know, always chaotic, always demanding democracy where you have to kind of keep up with the news and participate in elections and so on. But the problem with an uh, authoritarian regime is that when the leader makes a mistake, if no force can point that out in a convincing way or constrain or reverse it, then you're committed to that mistake for the duration of that ruler's time in power. Yeah. And that is the, I think, history generally shows, that's the bigger risk because a bad idea clung to yeah. can be massively destructive, whereas a lot of bad ideas that are tried and then discarded can be survived. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you... Here's the thing, you know, we can't anticipate what's going to happen. It may be that the pace of climate change will lead to faster sea level rise than we expect. It may lead to less. Uh, it may be that the revival of nationalism will lead to turning all the smart, innovative foreigners away from the United States, or it may be just a passing thing and then we'll open up again. It's very hard to tell. What's important is the ability to adjust to what actually occurs. I mean, the, the, I think the biggest single example of an idea that might have been arguably a good idea in the past, but it's clearly not now, is uh, classic interstate competition, because it plays a key role in my argument. But I think the problem is that the modern technology has now made it unbelievably destructive. And so that would be a classic example of maybe a not bad idea anyway that has now become a disastrously bad idea. So, you know, there, and there are, there are plenty of others. I mean, you could argue meritoc meritocracies in that category, mm -hmm. although I happen to think that's a bad idea from the start, but you could argue <laughs> that that's the, um, uh, an example of that. Yes, right at the back, K2 colleague. I ask you both of, uh, speakers, um, if modernity or Western civilization or success is so unique, does it mean that it is not guaranteed? If, for example, Dutch revolt would be crushed by Spaniards, if, let's say, a glorious revolution fail, if Prussian heroes would destroy British bourgeoisie, if the Nazi or and Soviet communism would win the Second World War, and so on, if wrong ideas would take place in minds of political leadership right now, or let's say wealthy mm. would concentrate political power, does it mean that uh, this success could be stopped? Would you agree or disagree with that? I, I agree completely with that. That's one of my major themes. I mean, I think, first of all, yes, that just because something has been going for a long time doesn't mean it's going to go on forever. Something could arrest it or check it. But also, uh, part of my major argument is that actually this breakthrough that happens is contingent. It, it, was, it happened because of things that were chance events. Um, I think the crucial, my own particular thing is that the crucial period actually is the very end of the 16th century and it's the failure of the Spanish monarchy of uh, the Habsburgs, Philip II, to defeat the Dutch uh, that is the sort of critical event. Uh, had he defeated the Dutch, he would probably have gone on to become the hegemonic power in Europe. Uh, but a few purely fluky things uh, stopped this happening. 
You mentioned 1688. That's another kind of critical point because, again, uh, Louis XIV was by then the other you know, aspiring hegemon, and he might well have done that had he not been defeated in the War of the Spanish Succession at the end of the 17th century. So, no, nothing inevitable about it. Uh, I would say that I'm, I'm very skeptical of theories of historical inevitability anyway. I think that methodologically there's lots to be said against that kind of position. One of the threats that you outlined in your speech was the idea of a kind of global level regulatory environment that could, you know, impose one size fits all um, yeah. regulation which crushes innovation. But then in one of the previous answers, you said that a bad idea or, or a, an idea who, whose best days may, may be behind it might be the idea of competition between states, yeah. perhaps in regulatory or, or tax terms or whatever. How do you reconcile those two That's positions? Very, this, is, this is difficult. This is quite a big challenge. I think this is the biggest challenge we have, is how to maintain uh, regulatory uh, and other competition between sovereign states and avoid going down the danger of, as you say, a one-size-fits-all international regulatory regime, which will stop the innovation, without at the same time then reviving the kind of often violent competition between states, which causes a huge amount of human suffering and loss of life and Lord knows what else. Uh, so that, that's the challenge. I tend to think that the way forward, wherever possible, is to break up larger uh, political units into smaller ones. Uh, that's why I favour things like Scottish independence, um, and not just on the basis that we should get shot of the Scots. Um, the, um, the, 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 the argument is that basically smaller governments are um, more and more uh, likely to be better run than larger ones, but also at the global macro level of world order, a world made up of city-states or very small states uh, is actually much more likely to be marked by competitiveness. The problem at the moment is we have a number of what you might call regulatory rule setters, the United States, the European Union, China in particular, to some extent Japan, uh, and it's very, very hard to pursue an independent regulatory policy. Uh, without aligning yourself with one of those regimes. Uh, so a much more multipolar, fragmented world, I think, is the way to go. That's a difficulty that our country is currently experiencing, yes. extricating itself from the European Union. Yes, this gentleman here. Hi, my name is Ashubat Nagar. I have a, a slightly different question about how do we measure wealth. An example would be, that uh, India and China continues for the longest period of time to be the importers and consumers of gold. And the world's most gold consumption continues to be in India and China. And uh, in the Western world where we have student loans and everything is transparent, you can see the wealth of a uh, you know, Western uh, individual is visible. Whereas when you go to India and China, they are importing billions and billions of dollars of gold everywhere, but does it show it anywhere on their mm. asset or wealth records? It doesn't. Either the, it goes into temples or in charities or lockboxes or in jewelry. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a classic phenomenon of insecurity of property, basically. Uh, when, when you... Um, have had for a very long time a situation where property is radically insecure, uh, the great temptation is to keep as much of your wealth as possible in a portable form. Uh, so, you know, you get these weddings where, you know, people have an amazing amount of gold jewellery and stuff on them, which is part of the dowry, and that's really a way of capturing wealth. That means you can shove it in a suitcase and take off if you want, or keep it under your floorboards. Um, 
It's not productive, of course, because it means that all that wealth is there. You know, gold jewellery by itself doesn't do a whole lot for the gross national product. Um, I think the only solution to that really is to is the, the rule of law over a sustained period of time, so that people get less attached to that that idea uh, and more confident in the the future security of their possessions uh, that they won't do it. Uh, the other thing that you also get is, particularly in India, as, as I don't need to tell you, under the so-called permit Raj that Nehru set up, is a situation where the way to get really great wealth is through manipulating the, the state license system. Uh, and that also tends to feed into insecurity, actually, because it means that the source of your wealth is dependent critically upon favours from the right politician, uh, which makes it fundamentally fragile you could lose it at any moment. Uh, things are much better now, of course, uh, but it takes a while, I think, for the intellectual and cultural legacy of having insecure property to, uh, to wear off. And the, the British did not help, by the way, in this regard. Uh, um, the legacy of the British Empire in this respect is not a good one. So. Right, we've got time for about two more questions. Um, so, yes, the gentleman in the jacket and the red tie... Uh, yes, John Mueller from Cato and from Ohio State. Uh, would you talk, one thing that hasn't been talked about in modern times is the astounding in, ex, uh, increase of life expectancy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that also basically took place starting pretty much with your magic date of 1860 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the question is, why didn't that happen earlier, much earlier? Uh, there's been lots of innovations, people running around trying to find various medicines, sometimes coming across things like aspirin. Uh, sometimes, sometimes, of course, coming across really stupid ideas like uh, like uh, leeches, but the germ theory goes back to the um, to, to the Greeks, and there's a view. You know, they kept closing theaters, which meant that they sort of understood that diseases could be passed by jamming people together and so forth. Um, so a lot of it was in the air, and there's also the incentive. Obviously, rich people certainly wanted to have. Uh, longer life expectancies than anybody else, and, and if medicine worked, that would be... But it, but the explosion really takes place much later in 1860 or so. Yep. And then and, and also the uh, in public health, but closing the theaters is a form of public health too, so they could have done that earlier as well. So the question is, why didn't that happen centuries or even millennia earlier? Do you want to yeah, look, it, it, it's, it's fairly straightforward. You're correct that the germ theory of transmissibility, contagion, was well known. Even during the bubonic plague, people realized you had to stay away from people who were infected, and during sieges, they would throw infected bodies over the walls to... So, so that was known. What was not known was the degree to which water supplies could be invisibly contaminated by disease, and the degree to which soap could be used to sanitize on a regular basis. Also, infant feeding and the need to be uh, careful with infants in particular wasn't known. So there were a number of simple innovations that ended things like cholera, reduced the risk of pneumonia. Part of it was also better nutrition and better housing. If you could keep people reasonably clean, reasonably well housed, reasonably fed, um, you could avoid many of the epidemic diseases that wipe people out uh, in childhood and uh, early adulthood. And that was where the big gains in life expectancy occurred. It wasn't until very recently that we saw lifespan beyond 60 become more common. 
Yeah, uh, and very quickly to add to what Jack just said, uh, two key figures in this whole story, um, Jon Snow, not the chap from Game of Thrones, <laughs> uh, the man who discovers how the cholera epidemic worked in London and was able to show the connection between polluted water and the spread of that disease, and Louis Pasteur and subsequently Robert Koch, who are able to definitively show the existence of microorganisms which cause disease and the transmissibility of it. Now, the question is, why did that not happen earlier? And I think the reason is because uh, it required an intellectual revolution in the understanding of medicine and the application of the scientific method to medicine, which did not happen until the early to mid-19th century. Previously to then, doctors were pretty good at doing surgery, I have to say, but for anything else, the last thing you did if you were ill was to see a doctor, because if the illness didn't kill you, the doctor certainly would. Uh, so I think that's, to answer your question, that's why it didn't happen earlier. It was the, um, it was when medicine became a scientific discipline rather than a discipline of inherited wisdom that you got those critical breakthroughs through people. Yeah, like in, in, in particular, discovery of penicillin was a product yeah. of scientific method. Just even though you could observe penicillin molds, testing their efficacy was not something you would do without an experimental approach. Similarly with vaccination. Vaccination was known throughout history, but was not systematically applied because without an experimental method to prove the efficacy to a wide variety of people, the risk of vaccination was something that most people avoided as we're encountering even again today. Um, but that, that was the triumph of scientific method as applied to medicine as opposed to the traditional theories. Right, we've got time for one more question. Um, yes, this gentleman's had his hand up for most of the event. <laughs> uh, just wait for the microphone. Thank you. Uh, Richard Osborne. Um, I've been reading Gerald Baker in the Wall Street Journal in the last couple of weeks, um, and the Wall Street Journal's main editorial uh, yesterday as well on, uh, on Brexit. Um, the, is it your view that this business of, of the wealthy people gaining power as being a problem? that that is really why the, the, the mess, the political mess in, in England is taking place, that the people with money never wanted this. Mm -hmm. And the people with money actually are quite well represented in Parliament. And so that in all, all three political parties, there's been a, a, a deliberate attempt to, to undermine what actually was a four-point uh, uh, spread between the Brexiteers and the Remainers. Four points is not basically a split. Yeah. That's a decisive victory. Right. Um, the two things. One is, okay, can I just say, while I'm over here in the United States, pretty much everyone I meet says, what the hell is going on with Brexit? You know, was there, um, one of the things is, yes, the, there are large substantial commercial and other interests, particularly in the city of London, who do not want the UK to leave the EU. There are wealthy people on the other side, however. Uh, I don't think that you can really understand this uh, in terms of simply wealthy people versus the rest. It's more about certain different categories of rich people, basically, uh, and certain interests within British society. And I think the more powerful and important one is actually the media class and the political class, who are very averse to Britain's leaving the EU. As to why it's such a total mess, um, well, this comes to what Ryan mentioned I'm interested in, this realignment thesis of mine. I think the reason is because Brexit has catalyzed an emerging division in British society, which is, broadly speaking, a division about identity um, and about a con contrast between cosmopolitan globalism and 
traditionalist nationalism. And you see this happening in every European country at the moment. Uh, and as I say, it's a catalyst. It's, it's made it happen much more rapidly and sharply than it otherwise would have done. The problem is that the political parties we have do not align with that issue. So about half of the people who take the nationalist view vote for the Labour Party, the other half who take that view vote for the Conservative Party, vice versa on the Remain side, if you will, the cosmopolitan side. And so the result is that we have parties in Parliament that do not represent the actual division of opinion in the public. Now, what I think you're going to see today, in fact, in the European Parliament elections, is that the voters in their elections for that body are going to sort themselves out into Remain versus Leave. And the result is that the two traditional big parties are going to do catastrophically badly. Uh, the Conservative Party is polling at about less than 10%, Labour Party about 15 to 19% at the moment. Uh, so I think that's, that, that's why it's such a mess. I'm afraid, though, it's going to continue to be a mess uh, for quite a while, which is a source of great entertainment. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. On that happy note, we'll end. Just before I thank the speakers, uh, please do join us for lunch, which will be held on the second floor. If you go out of this door here, follow down the corridor, and then straight up the spiral staircase. It will get, give you a good feed and, and drink. Uh, restrooms are on the way. Uh, Dr. Davies, Dr. Goldson, thank you so much for this enlightening event. If we could thank the speakers in the usual way. Thank you.